Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Hey, let me uh, invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, open with me to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be in chapter 3 and begin in verse 12 this morning. You say, why do you begin in verse 12? Because we ended last week in verse 11. And uh, we're walking our way through this, uh, this series on the incomparable Christ. And uh, uh, I think... I think we'll be done by Easter with Colossians, okay? And uh, some of you are going, Easter is such a long ways away. Not really. It's really not. It's like right around the corner. Hey, uh, today is kind of a unique day uh, because it's, uh, well, what I, what I told you yesterday in the video is it's an all generations worship. And I just want to explain that to you for just a second. That means that we've got boys and girls that are in the service today that uh, might normally be in a connect group or in a children's worship hour. And uh, the reason that that's not going on today. So some of you moms and dads are thinking, please, next week. And uh, I, I hear your heart, okay? So let me tell you why that's not going on. I'm convinced, convicted personally that... Uh, uh, we don't ever try to force anyone or guilt anyone or pressure anyone to come out, especially in strange weather conditions or icy roads or stuff like that. So to give maximum flexibility, even though we had uh, well over half of our uh, volunteers, and it takes hundreds of folks to make this happen every week. Um, even though we had well over half our volunteers who said, we're committed, we're going to be there. Nobody really knew about the weather. So I just want to give flexibility to them. So when our team met yesterday, we said, hey, listen, let's just, let's just do an all generations worship service. Let the kids come in with us and uh, be a part of our worship service today. And that way, if connect group leaders can make it, great. And if they couldn't make it, um, we understood that too. So boys and girls, if you're here in the room today, I'm going to give you some homework assignments. Now, don't roll your eyes at me yet. I'm going to share three things, three points of a message, and they're going to be up on the screen, and they're going to have fill in the blank. So the words that will fill in will be a different color. What I want you to do is I want you to fill out that outline, and when the service is over today, I'm going to be out in the foyer. If you'll bring me a copy of that, I would love to see it. It would be a blessing to my heart. So if you can fill in your outline. Now, some of you right now are going, I don't even have a pen, preacher. You're making this way more difficult than it ever had to be borrow one. I'm trying to help us here, okay? So anyway, that's, a, that's where we're going to be today as we uh, worship all of us together today. Let me, uh, let me give you a warning, all right? Family story warning. It's a story about my family, and I felt like I ought to just give you a heads up about that. Brace yourself. With each of my sons, Jody and I have two adult sons, as you know, but with each of my sons, there came a time in their journey uh, toward manhood where in their teen years where it was necessary to take them for their first suit fitting. You're going, what a boring life you live. I'm a Baptist preacher. Of course it's boring. <laughs> but it's, uh, there was a time where you have to go say every young man needs a suit. He needs a dark blue suit or a black suit or something like that. If nothing else, there'll be a dance somewhere or, or a wedding you have to go to or something. So they all needed a suit. And, and listen, when I took the boys shopping for their suits, as best I remember, and I'm old, so my memory could be slipping, but as best I remember, they uniformly gave me a cosmic eye roll. 
Oh, gonna, I don't want to try on clothes. I'd rather do whatever. I, and by the way, that just goes with the territory. And so who cares? I'm dad. And if you like to eat here and like to live indoors, you'll get a suit. So that's how that works. So here's what I learned, though, in that process of this journey, taking them to the suit store. After a good tailor comes out and uh, fits them for a suit, finds a jacket that fits just right, they get the trousers hemmed up to exactly the right length, and then we buy all the other stuff that goes with it, the button-down shirt and the obligatory noose, I mean tie that you have to wear, and then shoes. And so After you get all of that stuff together, the first time they stood in front of a mirror and saw it, it's no more an eye roll. We're not like this. It's Chin ducks down just a little bit. You start giving the old James Bond look. Bond. James Bond. And, uh, and they, now listen, if you raise daughters, they just do theirs on Instagram. It's a different thing. You know, they have a pose too. And, uh, and I, I get it. I, I, look, I get, here's the thing. Sometimes, sometimes the clothes make the man. Now that, in case you think I'm just coming up with a, a, a slogan from a men's warehouse ad or something of that nature. That's, that's not the intent. That proverb's been around for a million years. In fact, most Americans attribute that statement, clothes make the man, to Mark Twain. But I found that if you trace that back to its origin, I can get it back at least eight centuries before Christ. You're like, holy cow, are you serious? Yeah, it traces back through the Dark Ages, past Erasmus, to... Homer's Odyssey in the late 8th century B.C. is the first reference to a phrase that's very close to that that I was able to find because here's what's been true all along. Sometimes just putting on the right outfit allows you to rise to the level of what it is that you're wearing. That's what I want to talk about today when I speak on the subject of being dressed in king's clothes. I want to talk today on this subject because that's where Paul goes next in our letter. He talks about the fact, last week he talked about things we needed to put off. This week he talks about things we need to put on. He says, you've got to dress up in this thing, this, uh, this activity, this characteristic, these qualities. You have to put those on, dress up in them because you're a child of the king. And this is what the, this is what the kings wear. And he deals with it from that standpoint. And that's what I want us to talk about for the next few minutes today. The Christian life is a life of removing sin, as we talked about last week, to step away from things that uh, are against God, that, are, that, don't, that don't resonate with His name, that don't testify to His goodness, His holiness, His righteousness. Those things we have to discipline ourselves to step away from. But the life of a Christ follower is not a, just a list of thou shalt nots. It's also a list of thou shalts. In other words, there's some things that you're supposed to avoid, but there are other things that you're supposed to step into and embrace. And that's what Paul deals with today. So here's the thrust. By committing to live according to a new identity in Christ, that's where we ended last week, we prepare the stage of our life so that the drama can be lived out of faithfulness and fruitfulness before the entire world. Now, that's the big picture. I want to show you how that nets itself out beginning in verse 12. So we're in Colossians 3. We're going to begin in verse 12. And can I invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Colossians 3 and verse 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. 
Verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Pause right there. Father, even in these moments, would you help us to understand the incredible privilege of being dressed in King's clothes? And then I pray that uh, you'd help us, Lord, to embrace that. Not just to acknowledge the privilege, but to embrace it. Have your will and way. Find us faithful to respond in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. As you're seated, you may want to follow along on an outline. I'm going to share with you three, uh, three points, three observations, three instructions related to dressing in the king's clothes. Three instructions the scripture gives us. Now, if you'd like to follow along, you didn't bring a pen. There is a hope. There, there is a hope for you. And here's what it is. You could actually text the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. We'll send you a link to the outline. Or you could open your church app up and right there under sermon notes, you'll find it as well. And you can fill in the blanks. Boys and girls, by the way, if your parents let you touch the device at that point, then all you have to do is click on the blank. It'll fill in the word for you. You don't even have to be good at spelling. All right. So there's that. Just wanted you to know. Now you know everything. It's amazing. This is how your parents get all the right answers every week when they come home. Okay. First thing I want you to see, first instruction, I want you to see, we're told to put on the clothes of the king. Put on the clothes or clothing, the clothes of the king. Look at verse 12 again. This is how Paul kicks off this section. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and Patience. Now, I want you to notice three things as uh, we look at that idea or ideal together. First of all, notice with me that to put on necessarily follows put off. Now, we began in verse 12, but last week we began in verse 5. And in last week we covered through an area of the text where we were told put off immorality, put off this kind of talk, put away those things. But necessarily after you put something off, you need to put something on. By the way, that's the primary verb in the section that you look here. When, uh, when you look at what we're instructed to do, it's an imperative that occurs there, put on. It's actually a, for all of you who didn't get to nerd out with me last week, it's a middle voice imperative. In other words, it says you yourself are to obey this. You yourself are to Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In the last section, we put off and put aside sinful habits and actions and activities. But as we know, just undressing is insufficient. 
we must redress in clothes that we were meant to wear. Now, can I say to you, that's one of the big challenges people naturally wrestle with. They say, hey, I got saved, and when I did, I stopped, I stopped cussing, I stopped drinking, I stopped kicking the dog, I stopped yelling at traffic at Walmart, and, uh, but I'm, I don't feel any better, I just got rid of some stuff. Hey, that's right, you can't get to abundant life just by shedding the old. Getting to abundant life involves also putting on the new. You can't just cover sinful actions either, by the way, by just adding layers of righteousness. You have to put to death what we talked about. That's the language of last week. Put to death sinfulness before you can bring to life or put on the king's attire. So the first thing was to that put on necessarily follows putting off. Secondly, I want you to see you can wear the king's clothes because you're the objects of the king's choosing. You can wear king's clothing because he chose you to wear king's clothing. Hey, I want you to know something. As the, as the kid in elementary school who almost never got picked for kickball, unless it came down to me and that one other kid, I won't mention his name because he might actually get on the internet one day and then that would be terrible. I'd feel horrible. But unless it was between me and him, I was usually still in the pool waiting to be picked to play games. Can I tell you, it's a blessing to be picked. And that's the point here. The reason that you can put on these things is because God chose you to reflect him, to bear his image, to, to dress up in king's clothing. He picked you. You say, if God had known about me, he wouldn't have picked me. He does know about you and picked you, not because of you, but because of his image in you and what he desired to do for you that you might experience the abundance that he came to give you. Go back to the verses we ended with last week. I want you to see his choosing here. Look at, uh, this is scandalous, by the way. Look at verse, uh, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Now, the Colossians may have seen themselves when they came to the Christian faith as somewhat other. Why? Because Jesus was Jewish. All of his early followers were Jewish. In fact, Jesus came to the Jews. I wonder if when the gospel got to Colossae, if they kind of felt like they were the I guess us twos, the others of the gospel. I wonder if the Jewish believers maybe created layers of awesomeness and said, well, we're Jewish believers and y'all are just believers. And they formed a second tier or a third class citizenry or a fourth class citizenry. That's why when Paul tells them this, it's as though he's addressing a feeling within them like they had somehow jumped on and hidden as stowaways on the Jewish train of Christianity. But that's not so. The Bible teaches that we as, 
as uh, Gentiles are no different than those who are the Jews. We've been grafted into the root, Paul says, one of the pictures he uses to address this. It's not that uh, we were grafted in to replace the Jews as though we were grafted into the root as a replacement. We weren't. We were grafted into the root. So it wasn't to replace the Jews, nor was it to be subservient to the Jews, but we were made one with them in, hey, catch this, as the church, as the people of God. Which is why Paul says this new renewal means there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, between those who are circumcised, those who are non-circumcised, those who are barbarian or Scythian or slave or free man, but Christ is all and in all. And you've been brought into this family. It's almost as if he had to tell them, you're not second class or second place. God chose you. You're not his backup plan. You're his plan. Why tell us that unless it stands as some kind of evidence of a stratification that rises up out of the evil human heart seeking advantage or of, over another or recognizes strug, a struggle with unworthiness in the hearts and minds of people. Notice the three terms that he uses in our text that we looked at. Chosen, holy, and beloved or beloved. Why, why those three terms? Hey, they formed a foundational picture of beautiful imagery in the, in the life of the Jews. Jot down if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. Let me show it to you. For you are a holy, set, set apart, sanctified, a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love, beloved, on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of these peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Beloved, he loves, chosen, he's chosen for himself, holy, he's set apart for himself. When Paul uses these words as he writes to the Colossians, as he describes them, that's not unintentional. He's just not throwing random fluffy words out there. He's saying in the sight of God and in the heart of Christ, you are no different than those who first believed. You are holy and chosen and beloved. So verse 12 again. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, this church. The third thing to see are that action always follows identity. As those who have been chosen, who are holy, who are beloved, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice he didn't say, those of you who have a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, you are beloved. He said, you're beloved, chosen, and holy. Now, now dress in the king's clothing of who you are by putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then drop down to verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, you may ask, I can't do these things. How am I supposed to do that, Chris? Every time I try to do that, it just doesn't work. How am I supposed to do it? It's impossible for me. Question. Is it impossible for you as a once-born person or as a twice-born person? See, if you've been born once, you're right, that is impossible. 
How are you going to be gentle and compassionate and humble and all of those things if you've never met Jesus? But as a twice-born person, I'd say to you, it's impossible for you as a twice-born person not to put this on. Why? Because God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to His purpose. He works all of these things together to mold and shape us so that we might bear and reflect the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working this in us, through us. He's bringing this to bear. We're, we're choosing, I want to embrace this, and God's making it possible as a twice-born person. Two additional things to consider, and I want to move on. First of all, when I talk about king's clothing, you may have a picture of some kind of opulent gold jewelry, or in modern terms, that's a $2,000 suit, isn't it, Chris? Nope. Our king's clothing, it's not a $2,000 suit or designer dresses. It's a towel girded around his waist with a basin under his arm. It's a, when you dress in the king's clothing, you dress as Jesus. And Jesus didn't go around flashing a lifestyle. Jesus the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, Jesus said of Himself. So the first thing to understand is we're not talking about opulent clothing here. We're talking about putting on the clothes of a servant. And then secondly, none of these virtues that He talked about can be worn apart from community. None of these things that He talked about putting on can even be, can even be validated apart from community. You may say, well, Chris, I'm a very humble, kind, loving, gentle, and patient person before I get out of bed. But the moment I get up and go to work, that's when people drive me nuts. I get it. But do you realize you can't, you can't model humility in a room by yourself? You can't be compassionate to yourself, gentle to yourself. All of these are characteristics that are lived out in community among people, around people. It could be that God uses the people to help perfect the clothing that we put on. I was serving in a church once and uh, I made a statement that one of the, I know this is going to shock you, this almost never happens to other preachers, but I made a statement once that somebody didn't agree with. And this lady came up to me afterwards and she said, you know you got that completely wrong. I did just that. And matter of fact, pride crawled all the way up the back of my skull and it was about to come out the front end. And for some reason I paused because she said, you just completely misunderstood that. That is not what that says. <gasps> and I thought to myself, you know, when I was first getting started, I was a goofball that just said the first thing that came to my mind. Bless her heart. I think I responded with something like, you know, opinions vary. But when you study it, I bet, you'll, I bet you'll find something different. Let me know if you want me to point you to some things. And then I thought, bless her heart. <laughs> you, do you understand what I'm saying? Hey, I don't get to model that until I get in front of people. Because if I'm just in a room by myself, that, that, none of that even makes sense. Humility, compassion, gentleness, patience, kindness, love, all is experienced in the process of community. Notice not only are we commanded to put on the king's clothes, but secondly, rest 
in the peace of the king's fellowship. Rest in the peace that's provided by being in fellowship with the king. Rest in the peace of the king's fellowship. Look at verse 15 with me. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Now this is the second verb in the section and that verb is the word, well it's translated in English as two words, let rule. By the way, that if you like that word, it's, a, it's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It's never used at any other point. Usually when you see the word rule in the, in the New Testament, it's translating the Greek word arche. Um, speaking of like a king would rule over. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying let the, let the peace of Christ be the king of your heart. I know there's a song like that, but that's not what this is saying. Rather, it speaks of a, not, it speaks in our terms today, more like a judge or an umpire. It's a, it says, let the peace of God be the umpire that calls the balls and strikes of life that you experience. You know what umpire doesn't, they don't make up anything. Well, some of you might think they do, you know, but they, they, don't, make, they, they don't make up things. They just call them as they see them because pitch comes down, it catches the inside corner, it's a strike. It comes over there and hits a guy on the side of the head, it's a base. Uh, they're just calling what comes at them. That's what he's saying here. He says, let the peace of God be the umpire behind the plate of your heart. Let the peace of God call the balls and strikes in your heart. Filter the offenses of life, the, the challenges of life. Filter all of those things through the judgment, the peace of Christ. Filter the irritation. Filter the joy. Filter the praise and adulation. Filter all of those things through the peace of Christ, which is the umpire of your heart. So why is that important? Well, a couple different reasons. It's not that, well, I've got the peace of Christ, it's just ruling over my heart. He's saying when stuff comes at you, filter that through the peace that, hey, listen, that Christ gives you. Chris, I'm so offended. I know, but you know when you filter that through the peace that comes from being forgiven by Jesus whom you greatly offended, that offense takes on a little bit different stripe. See, part of me that wanted to pinch that little woman's head who called me out and said crazy things to me had to remember, do you remember when you used to say stuff to those other people and, and still do now and again, unfortunately, but when you'd say stuff that you just, when you thought about it later, you realize what a goofball I am. Remember how Christ forgave you, Chris? Hey, let that filter rule in your heart. Judge what's taking place through of, of all of the things that come at you, both good and bad. Christ's peace, by the way, is different than what we could make as peace for ourselves or experience from the hands of others. When Christ gives us peace, that's a much different kind of peace. Jesus said so. Jot down John 14, verse 27. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
Jesus' peace, he said, stands up and against the peace of the world, up and against the peace of our own making, up and against the peace that others could transfer to us. He says, my peace is a different kind of peace. And you don't have to make it up. You don't have to learn it. I give it to you. Let it be the filter, the, the judge, the umpire that calls the circumstances of life that come at you, that calls them perfectly. Now, let's be honest. We often struggle with that. The, the kind of peace that Jesus gives, because man, all of us want to be forgiven, but we're not always big on forgiving. We all want Jesus to let us off the hook, but we're not much on letting others off the hook. We struggle with it because we think God gave us peace just for our good and comfort and confidence, and that's true. But he also gave us peace so we know how to deal with offenses. Are there offenses we face as Christ followers? I was watching a guy on TV. He said he was a preacher. He had gold furniture all around him. He said once you got saved, you'd be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Which is a great statement, except Jesus said in this world, you will have troubles and take courage. I've overcome it. If the TV preacher could just have taught Jesus something, then Jesus would have known better than to think our life would be one of dealing with offense. The fact of the matter is, we're all dealing with offense now and again. Look at verse 13, Colossians 3, 13. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as, balls and strikes, the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Jesus, he absorbed the debt of our sin, our offense against him. He absorbed that. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? I mean, the sin that was laid on Christ was not his own. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. When he bore the weight of sin, he bore the weight Chris Aiken laid on him. My sin, my evil, my rebellion, my self-righteousness, my arrogance, my false witness, my cheating heart, my unfaithful mind. He bore the weight of all of that, absorbed all of that debt. And by the way, did you notice here that much of the offense that comes, that we're supposed to do it like Jesus did, most of the offense that comes at us that Paul's dealing with here isn't coming from the outside world, but from inside the walls. Go back and look at verse 13 again. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone as the Lord forgave you bearing with one another one another yeah it's easy for us to remember that in the world we're going to have the culture is going to always be offensive to us by the way you're an offense to the culture if you live out your faith every day the world looks at you like you're a weirdo if they're not looking at you like you're a weirdo you're probably not weird enough for them to notice. Which means you look more like them than you do like Jesus. But the very presence of your life among the culture that's, a, that's everything against Christ brings an offense toward them. But we're not even talking about the culture. He didn't say them. He said the one and others. Aren't those the hardest things to let go? When a one another gets you, 
your Christian brother or sister does something wrong, offends, offends you, uh, tells something you said, I, I meant for that to stay in confidence and you blasted it on Facebook. I meant for you to keep that between us. I was confessing my sin to you. I didn't know it'd make it into the Connect Group prayer list. I told you about this insecurity I have. I didn't know you were going to preach about it. Here's what he said. Let the peace of Christ, which you've experienced, be the filter through which you measure all of those offenses as they come through. And you call it ball, strike, ball. As you're deciding, what do I do with that? This offense that came to me, I'm going to absorb that or I'm going to forgive it or I'm going to cancel it. Why? Because the peace of Christ, which I gained from Christ absorbing, canceling, and forgiving, is what I experienced. Therefore, I'm going to choose to do that toward others. Of course, you and I are hurt and offended by the culture, but we're also hurt and offended by the saints who are in process, the people within the family. Hey, this is going to shock you, but I've met people who told me, I used to believe, but I left the church. Why is that? Well, because I, man, I met some Christians and some of them are messed up. I said, you're right. Man, some of them are terrible. Aren't you glad you could never come hang out among us unless we accepted that? Not only do we accept it, we embrace it. We want it. Why? Because we're all messed up. Hey, newsflash, this is the land of misfit toys. And I'm the mayor. We're here on purpose. Not because we figured it out and God's lucky to have us, but because apart, desperately, apart from God's grace, we're sunk. But because of him, there's hope. So bring your broken, messed up cell phone in here and join the party. We'll get offended at each other together and try to forgive and move forward. Am I making sense to you? That's exactly what Paul said. He said, hey, you took off this sinful stuff. Now you've got to put on this other stuff so you can survive family life. And be at peace with all men. Romans 12 and verse 18. If possible, Paul said, here's a, here's a mantra for you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I can't control him. That guy's a buzzard and he won't even talk to me. Yeah, but you can be at peace with him or you can keep rehearsing why he's a buzzard and won't talk to you and then rehearse that to your connect group and then rehearse that to your pastor and rehearse that on the prayer wall. Rehearse it to your neighbor. You could keep doing that, but that's not what he means in Romans twelve eighteen. He said, as much as it depends on you, Lord, I'm just going to transfer that one over to you. You can deal with that sweet person. Bless his heart in Jesus name. And then you just move forward. Y'all know what bless your heart means. I didn't mean it like that. I don't know what y'all were thinking, but the altar's open. Anyway, let me move on here for just a second. I'm glad, friends. I was reflecting on this. And I'm glad that we live in a time and a place where people are focused on how they've been done wrong. I'm a victim. I've been treated unjustly. I've been treated unrighteously. I want justice. I want righteousness. I want fairness. Do you? Are you sure? Jesus is just. Do you know in his justice, if he weren't merciful too, 
in his justice, you and I would all be condemned to hell. But he's not only just, he's also the justifier. Because in his perfection, he absorbed our offense toward him and made it possible for you and I to be reconciled and to bear his righteousness, to put on king's clothing. I'm not sure Jesus would forgive me of my sin. Jot this down. I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I'm going to just give it to you. John 8, verses 1 to 11. Jesus is out, he's out in, the, in the open area where the people are. And a bunch of religious dudes came in there. They all had nooses on, my, my version. They, uh, they, they all came out there and they threw this woman at his feet and said, we found her committing adultery and the law says we need to kill her. What do you say? You remember the story. Jesus wrote something in the dirt and he said, those of you who've not sinned, you cast the first stone. And the Bible records that each of them from the oldest to the youngest dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus, riding in the dirt, says to the woman, Woman, where are those that accuse you, those that condemn you? And she said, There are none. He said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he released her. Now think about that for just a second. Just Jesus could have picked up every one of those stones and had the right, but justified Jesus. The peace of Christ which rules in your heart cause of justifier Jesus while he had the right to do something to collect on the debt released it let that peace rule in your heart is what he says man I don't know about you but when I think about the things in my life I struggle the most with that's probably one of them why do you think it became habit number one when we lay out our list of four habits of what does it look like to be a disciple at Englewood Rest, bless, gather, and go. And we lay those four habits. They're on the wall if you forgot them. They're on the wall out there. We lay those out. Do you know why we started with rest? Because, man, we've got to learn to rest in this fact that there's a peace that God gives us that we get to experience every day that rules in our hearts. That's the idea here. This first habit requires us to rehearse the gospel to ourselves repeatedly, to gaze at it intently, to respond to it worshipfully to live it out compassionately and to teach it to our to others our family diligently i can't think of any more important lesson for us to grasp and press into the heart of those we love than to rest in this one more thing put on the king's clothes rest in the peace of the fellowship of the king and then number three yield to the good instructions of the king yield to the good instructions of the king. Does the king give us things that he tells us to do as his people dress like him, experiencing the peace of Christ who are, who are allowing that to rule in our hearts? Yes. Verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. By the way, this is the third verb in this section. And it's the word let dwell. 
let dwell. Comes from the root word oikos, or where we get the word house, or household, or family, if you will. Sometimes it's translated in the Greek terms. But uh, it speaks of the household, the place where people live, where they reside, where they call home. So, here's what he says. He says, let the word of Christ reside at home within your heart and mind. Let the word of Christ. Then the application of that's in verse 16. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart toward to God. Wait a minute. You mean reflecting on what God has said in his word and using that with all wisdom to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to instruct one another, to give thanks to God with one another from our hearts? Yeah, let the, let the word of Christ dwell deep within you and then let the overflow of that be the encouragement, the building up of one another until we look like Jesus. What a beautiful instruction about community. What does it look like to be the people of God? I wish I could tell you, especially in these post, it's not even post-COVID days, but in this last period of time where I've had a lot of people that have said, I'm not sure I'm comfortable coming back into community. Listen carefully. We've got some folks who I love dearly who it would, be, it would be a terrible thing for them to come back into fellowship because of health issues, because their doctors would kill them uh, or something. I mean, just beat them or something. I don't mean like literally kill them. I don't have to, that's going to come back in an email. That's not what I meant. <laughs> and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and give me a filter through there and say, bless his heart and move on. But there's, there's health reasons why they ought not be back in community. But I see far more at Target. I see far more at other big events. And here's what, here's generally the line that I'm told. Man, I, I follow online every week. Man, I tell you, I love it. I appreciate that. I mean, my bucket's filled. Man, I appreciate it. Probably fluffy words to a preacher, but I get it. But my bucket's filled. I know, but how are you filling anybody else's bucket? See, you can't, you can't do what we were created to do in community in a room by yourself. And you can't do it on Facebook Messenger. You can't do it. It was never designed to be that way. Now, some... Well, you came out in the snow. I'm going to give it to you. Some preachers have gone as far as to say, well, we'll just shut down all of our online stuff. That way we'll force you back in. I've raised enough toddlers to know you can't force green beans in them. It just goes up their nose. You can't force it in them. Yep. I'll just go to another church. I know. Bless you. Because everybody's got one of those online web thingies which we do incredibly well. So, I've decided, man, we're just not, we're not going to take away that, like that's going to sudden how twist your arm. We're just going to pray for you and tell you, listen, even if you could get your bucket filled, you can't become all that Jesus wants you to become and experience the fullness of what He's created you for. 
You can't get to abundant life and be an instrument of his life in another person's abundance sitting at home by yourself. You can't get there. So come home. Hey, if that applies to you, come home. We miss you. We love you. We need you. Christ has designed our body to work that way. I can no more do without you in my faith family than, than I could sever my left arm and go around like everything's just normal. We're family. So, as soon as your doctor says you can, come home. We're safer than Target. We're more safe than, I was about to name a restaurant. I'm going to let it go. Anyway, I, you got the idea. You, you got the idea. Hey, what an instruction for us. Hey, encourage one another with wisdom. It's a beautiful picture of community. We apply the word that dwells within and spur one another along and pull one another back in the name of Jesus. And if that's good for our community, man, it's got to be good for the, not just our faith family, but our physical families. So let me ask you this. Are you dressed in king's clothing? I'm not asking you, did you swear off cussing, drinking, and being a Duke fan? I'm not asking you that. I'm, a, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just thought if I'd already offended part of you, I'd go for the rest. I'm not asking you if you hadn't swore off some bad things. I'm asking you, have you put on gentleness and humility and kindness and love? Have you put that on? If not, hey, listen, here's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to take that, he wants to take that old off of you and give you his robe. And to put that on today, you don't have to do a bunch of good deeds. Here's the one thing you have to do. Lord, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And from today forward, I choose to trust you and walk with you as the boss of my life. Would you do that today? I'm going to invite you wherever you are. If you're in this room, would you just bow your heads with me? All right, so here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Wherever you are, would you take and find a copy of the Scriptures and open up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 5. Colossians 3 and verse 5. We're going to work through verse 11 today. We worked through a series in Colossians, about nine messages, going into the end of November. And then we took some time away to uh, look at some messages related to the Christmas season and some New Year pieces. And now we're back into our study in Colossians as we look at the subject of the incomparable Christ. Paul's big idea in Colossians is that Jesus is unmatched, he's unparalleled, and, uh, and he's worthy of our worship. And today as we look at the text, you're going to see that his big idea is the subject of change. Now let me introduce the message kind of this way. This, uh, this past week, I gathered with our staff team and we had the opportunity to kind of, uh, as we do once a month, to get together in a room and celebrate what God had been doing in our midst and talk about goals and initiatives, all those things that we have in, in uh, the days ahead of us. And one of our big initiatives, as you know, has been uh, finding out how we can connect folks to the transformation of the gospel in their homes. In fact, we have a vision of seeing 5,000 homes transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And uh, you heard us talk last week that there were 254 homes from Inglewood who had already made that commitment, which praise God for all of that. And the question naturally comes up, well, how come we don't have more homes that are signed up? And uh, how come there aren't more folks from Inglewood? We're scattered all over the world. How come we don't see more than 254 homes? And that's a great question. And it doesn't really just relate only to Inglewood because this isn't an Inglewood thing. It's a God thing. It's a gospel thing. So uh, the greater question comes is how do we help other families find that connection point themselves to be a part of that themselves? So that's part of our discussion there. And really, as we've talked to folks from around the church and as we've talked to uh, individuals in our circles of influence, we found that it's really about three different reasons that most folks give. Some say, well, I just haven't taken the time to do it. I haven't, when I think about it, I'm doing something else and then I don't get around to it. And then others have been confused about what all's involved in that. Man, Chris, I don't want to add anything else to my life. I don't know exactly what, what uh, I have to do in order to be a transformed home. Do I have to paint my shutters purple and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and cut all my grass? What do I have to do in order to be a transformed home? And uh, we get that. So we're talking about that. But there's another reason I think that we've kind of put our finger on. Um, some folks just don't like change. In other words, they've been doing things the same way for a while. And uh, who in the world wants to change that? Well, I get that. I do. I understand completely what that means. But I wonder how odd that is for a Christ follower to not like change. In fact, the Christian life is, in fact, a life of change. God said that uh, he works everything in life around us together in some kind of a cosmic um, machine of an event kind of thing which uh, allows us all to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we would reflect him so that Christ would be glorified among many brethren. So we know life is about change but sometimes we don't want to change. We like the way we've been doing things. We don't really want to do it differently. But can we ever experience Christianity with that? The true gospel is not about you and I praying a prayer one day and hey I had a spiritual moment or I had a feeling in my heart and I prayed a prayer and, and now I'm, I'm suddenly good. Nothing has to change for the rest of my life. That's not the gospel at all. In fact, Paul is actually speaking to that subject right here. In fact, what he tells us as we look at the subject today, he tells us that change is absolutely necessary and required in the, light of a, in the life of a Christ follower. If there is no change, then as one preacher once said, then there has been no change. The Christian life is one of being conformed to the image of Christ. And as we look at that big idea today, I want you to see uh, several essential changes that the gospel affirming Christ follower makes in their lives. Now we're in Colossians 3. I just want to, I'm going to read the text and I'd encourage you to read along with me wherever you are. We're in Colossians 3. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Translation beginning in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal 
in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. What a great passage. Let's Let's just ask God to help us just connect that into our hearts. Pray with me again. Father, would you even in these moments take your word, which you have not only divinely inspired, but you've divinely preserved through the ages so that we would know precisely what you would want us to know, even though this was recorded some 2,000 years ago. And I pray that you would take your word and that you'd apply it to our hearts in such a way that we would be changed. Help us to understand what that is and how to go about that and to experience it and then be glorified as we respond to it. In Christ's name, amen. I said I want to share with you three essential changes. If you'd like to follow along, we actually have an outline that's still available to you. You can get that on your church app or you can text the word notes. Now, if you're on the device that you're trying to watch and you're like, how am I going to do two or three things at once? I get it. That's totally confusing. Just grab a piece of paper. I promise it won't be complex. And then you can just fill in the blanks as we go along the way. Let me show you these three essential changes that are necessary in the life of a Christ follower. First of all, Paul begins right here, and this is where I want us to begin. I want you to notice with me a change of mind, a change of mind. In order for us to become differently, we have to think differently. In fact, for years, experts have said that's really the beginning point, that attitudes have to change before actions can change. And that's Paul's point here. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, that word consider, where he says, therefore consider, that word consider literally means to put to death or to kill or to cause to cease living. It's, the, it's from the Greek word nekros. And, uh, and, and so it's not, hey, think about your bodies this way or just think this way. He's saying, think of them in such terms that you've already settled it. You are dead to these things. These parts of your life are dead. They no longer live. You have put them to death. Now, you may think, well, that's a terrible thing to think about on a Sunday morning in my living room. Why in the world would I want to think about death? Well, the death imagery is an important piece to Paul as he's talking about that, as he has already through the letter. In fact, we've seen it at least two other times. So let me just show you. Jot down Colossians 2 and verse 12, where Paul says, you and I, we are having, having been buried with Christ, with Him in baptism, in which you also Raised up, you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This idea of being buried, what a crazy idea. But here's what he said, you can't go back to where you were before. You can't get back there. You've been buried. You've put that life to, in the grave. You've set a marker above it. You've covered it with dirt. It's not your life anymore. And then Colossians 2 and verse 20. He says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? So here's what he's saying. If you've already determined, if you've already made up your mind, if you've already set your heart to the fact that you've died to these things, why would you go back? So you can see this imagery of putting something to death. Dying or putting it to death, such a big deal. And I think the reason is, as Paul's trying to drive home the point, you and I can't live with one foot in both worlds. We can't go on as though our lives um, continue the way they did before we met Christ, after we've met Christ. 
You can't kind of live over here in this world and kind of live in this world. When you become a Christ follower, there's an obvious, intentional, heart, willful change that takes place that necessarily works its way out in the way we live our lives. Our attitudes inform our actions. That's why there must be a change of mind. He says, consider or put to death the members of your earthly body. Now, Scholars help us understand in the language here that he's not just talking about physical members, but this not only deals with just the physical outworking, but he even says the way we process information. That word that's used there speaks not only of our our physical outworking, but also the way we process information. So here's what he's suggesting to us. He says you have to not only put your actions, but also your way of thinking before Christ to death. And then he gives us two primary areas of focus. And uh, these right here, these areas, when you think about them, if uh, they're really good barometers about our spiritual life. The two primary areas he talks about in the section deal with sexual behavior and verbal expression. Sexual behavior and verbal expression. And uh, I think he picks those two things. First of all, the first one, the sexual behavior, because in Colossae, where this letter was written, there was a lot of weirdness that took place in the sexual ethic and the way people lived their lives outside and apart from God's grand design that really did serve that many people who came out of that and came to Christ were struggling. What do I do with these practices that were part of my life beforehand? And what Paul teaches is that you've got to get right back to God's original design. Culture doesn't determine our activity. God determines our activity. So here's what he says in verse 5 again. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That word immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. And it means sexual immorality. It's kind of an umbrella term that covers everything weird or deviant or uh, that would occur uh, in a person's sexual behavior apart from God's grand design, which sexuality is a good thing. It was intended, though, uh, to always operate inside God's parameters between one man and one woman as husband and wife for the rest of their life and with no one else. So here's what he says. He says, you've got to put to death any kind of idea of sexuality apart from that. Now, we spent a great deal of time of this on Wednesday nights recently. And if you're interested in that, then I'd encourage you, maybe later on in your own study, you go out on the podcast or uh, go out to the, uh, our archived messages and just look at the subject of biblical sexuality. We walked through this for several weeks uh, on Wednesday night to just talk about how do we equip ourselves to understand how to deal with this in the culture in which we live. That's the word immorality. By the way, It's still a big battle point for us now because the sexual revolution that we live in in our culture today is a major front in the battle for souls. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but here's the bottom line. How you are in your sexuality can never be divorced from how you actually think. In other words, your thinking is affected by your sexuality and your sexuality is affected by your thinking. That's why Paul leads off when he starts with this list of things that have to change. That's the very first thing he mentioned. It's, to me, it's as though he were living in our times and like he understood where we are today. We can't even decide if a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl. And Paul said, that's exactly right. And that's why we have to get back to God's ethic as we uh, deal with the subject of immorality. The second word is the word impurity. It's akatharsis. And uh, and it literally means not cleanness. 
So here's what he says. You've got to put aside everything that has to deal with being soiled or dirty. Everything that's not clean, righteous, holy, and pure before God. You've got to set that aside. The third word is passions from the Greek word pathos. And uh, it means appetites or desires. So it's not just in your actions, but also in the things that you desire, your appetite for things in life. You've got to uh, commit those to God and you've got to put aside the Here's what he's saying, not that passions are bad, but you have to put aside the drive that passions can bring in your life that would somehow be more authoritative than God is in your life. In other words, you can't be driven by your passions and your appetites and your desires. You have to be driven by what God says he's created you to be, who he's made you to be. And if you'll do those things, then your passions as they are in line with that are good things. But as they might war against it or as they might lead you uh, more significantly than those things of God, then you've got to put those aside. Consider them dead, Paul said. Uh, immorality, impurity, passion. Here's another place where you'll find that word passion used, and, and, uh, and it's a big deal here. Just jot down Romans 1, verse 26. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, said, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. I know, by the way, the men did as well. So here's what, he was, here's what he was saying. He's saying some people given over to this desire within them. Here's who I am. Here's who I feel like I am on the inside. Paul said uh, for folks who start there and are driven that way, part of a sign of lostness is that you're just given over to and you're driven by passions from then on. God doesn't ma- it doesn't matter what God said. What matters is, is how you feel inside. What a picture, I think, of the world where we live in today. The fourth word there deals with the subject of evil desire. It's a desire that is opposite of good or godly desire. That's the best way to understand. I've looked all over for good definitions to try to figure it out. But here's what he's saying. Evil desire is just the opposite of good desire. So where you might have a good desire, he said, that's a good thing. The opposite of that is what you've got to put to death. Here's a picture of it in Proverbs 21 and verse 26. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So he's speaking of a a person, he says, uh, the evil desire is wanting, I need to gather more, 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 while the righteous person says, no, I'm not trying to gather more, more, I'm trying to give more, more, more. I'm trying to give and I'm not holding back on anything. I'm not trying to preserve or protect or care for myself. I'm trying to give everything away. You see the difference between an evil desire and a good desire. Let me give more versus let me, uh, or Versus let me get more. And then the the fifth word is the word greed. Greed. Now we go, man, I know greed's got to be bad. Greed's a terrible thing. I'm sure it is. Yeah, but sometimes we can couch greed in terms that make sense to us, that kind of fit inside of our our little paradigm. So maybe jot down, I won't show you on the screen, but uh, uh, jot down Luke 12, verses 16 and following. It's a parable Jesus tells of uh, the landowner, he says. And he says that this guy who owned a, a, a spot of land, it was a bumper crop, man. Everything came in, everything came in in abundance. It was overwhelming how much came in. And the landowner said, man, I've got to do something with all this excess that I've got. Now, of course, he's got a couple of options. Like the writer of Proverbs, he could give away and not hold back or he could draw it all into himself. 
So here's what he says. He says, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. And that way I'll have more stuff stored up. And then, hey, listen, I can sit back and relax and, uh, and just be merry. Know that I'm taking care of for the rest of my life. Now that parable ends with God saying, you fool. How did you not know that tonight your life would be required of you? You could go chasing after building more and gaining more and let that be your, your song of your life. But life is supposed to be so much more than that. And you could find in the end that you've wasted all of your energy on that which not only didn't matter, but that which worked against God himself. So, uh, here's the, that's the idea of greed. Man, I've got to have more, I've got to have more. Chris, well, good thing is we don't ever have to deal with that today. Really? So, um, like, do we ever sit back and look at our retirement accounts or, or look at how much we're putting in savings or how big our house is or how many cars or how nice this is or those things and we think, man, if I could just get a little bit more, a little bit better, then I can leave more to my kids. I can put more on this way. He said that's greed. But then he uses a crazy word. He says that's idolatry. He said, man, I knew it was bad to be greedy, but what do you mean an idol, idolatry? Is greed worshiping an idol? Yes. With idols, we praise the idol for what they can do for us. With idols, we take comfort in them and we find them to be our security. With idols, we, we tend to talk about them and talk to them and, and expect from them for them to uh, meet all of our needs. Our greed then, if our greed is an idol, it could lead us to a place of self-sufficiency to where our greed, our the things that we amass could be what we actually trust in, what we actually hope in, what we actually brag about. Hey, I just made my first million. Hey, I just got my first. Hey, I just got this. And the point, none of having stuff's never bad. But the point is if you had stuff and then it became more important than the one who gave it to you or gave you the ability to earn it or gave it to you so that through you he could be a blessing to others and change the world. If it became like that, well, then it's an, it's an idol and it is bad. Our greed could lead us to a place of self-sufficiency. That was a concern of the writer of Proverbs. Jot down Proverbs 30 and verse 9, one of my favorite of the Proverbs. Here's what he says. He says, just give me enough food for today. And here's why. I think he understood the condition of his own heart. He said, that I not be full, in other words, have excess, and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be without, be in want, and steal and profane the name of my God. This is what he, he said, God, I don't know that you can trust me with too little or too much because I'm probably going to turn that into the focus of my attention. Give me just what I need for today. Do you wonder, could that be what was behind Jesus' heart when he taught us in the model prayer? Lord, give us this day our daily, not our monthly or our weekly, our daily bread. I think that's probably something to that. Now we begin with a lot of strong language and ideas about thinking and attitude because everything else flows from here. Put to death, he says, because there's no room for a little dead or a little dying, but there's a requirement to put to death the things that compete with God as he reveals himself in the scriptures. But notice not only a change of mind, but then necessarily a change in conduct, a change in conduct. In other words, the way we live out our lives following that. Now, verses 6 and 7, I won't read those, but if you were to go back and look at those, verses 6 and 7 tell us that a mindset or attitude that we discussed were the reason that the judgment of God came on creation. 
In other words, when you, if you don't put these things to death, that's why judgment, uh, God's even brought judgment into creation to begin with. Idolatry and passions and lack of discipline and wrong thinking. But notice verse 8. Colossians 3 and 8, he says, But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Not just think differently about your previous passions and urges, your immorality and uncleanness, but put them all aside. Now, whereas the sexual ethic was the bullseye of the last uh, focal point, now our speech or our verbal expression is the bullseye of his, his emphasis here. All of these things relate in some way with the outworking of our heart in our speech. In other words, whether it's our sexual activity or it's our, our speech, they're a reflection of what's going on deep within our heart. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, the thing that proceeds out of the mouth comes from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. And did you notice there were a lot of similarities in those? That uh, in Jesus' list, it almost matched up with Paul's list perfectly, as well as all of the other times these vices are mentioned together. How significant is our speech? Well, like a rudder, a small little directional device has the ability to turn the course of a, a large ship or like a little spark has the ability to set an entire forest on fire, so the tongue is in its influence in life. It's why Jesus' half-brother James said in James 3, verses 5 and 6, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Hey, boys and girls, listen to me for just a second. This is why your mom and dad press in on you and they tell you to only use good words, don't use bad words. They tell you not to say that you hate people or that, this, that you really don't like something, but to speak of things positively and speak of things good because, hey, our attitude and our actions are affected by the words that we use. That's why they talk about that, and that's exactly, they got that from the Bible. That's exactly what the Scripture teaches us. Well, how can I, Chris, control my thoughts and my speech? Well, in some sense, it, it's not your initiative or strength. You can't do it. But it's God in you, working in you and through you. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that he would be the firstborn or the preeminent among many brethren. So God has already determined that he would use all circumstances to shape you and conform you to the image of Christ. God has determined, if you're a Christ follower, here's what I'm doing. When you come out the oven on the other end, the oven of life, you're going to look like my son Jesus. And that's a good thing, by the way. So in one sense, it's God working in us. In another sense, it's about a disciplined change that's rooted in an imputed desire in every believer. In other words, when we become Christ followers, God puts a homing beacon inside of us, a desire that's built in us to want to honor God, to want to honor the Lord Jesus, to want to reflect Him in everything. 
So, becoming that person <clears throat> oftentimes requires that we discipline ourselves in life. Jot down with me 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. Paul writing to the church at Corinth says this, he says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Well, wait a minute, which is it? Am I supposed to just let God work in me or am I supposed to discipline myself? Well, the Englewood answer, you know, is always yes. It's yes. It's a, there's a connection between what we choose to do and what God does within us and what God does within us and how that affects what we choose to do. It's so important that we don't miss these connection points of our actions and how it affects us internally. In fact, as you guys gave so generously to the Happy Birthday Jesus offering, that mind-blowing generosity that you showed in the midst of that, I told you, and I meant, I meant that, I mean this with all my heart. It had nothing to do from my perspective with the amount of money given, though every bit of that will be used for great things in the kingdom. But the biggest part for me was how God says where we invest our treasures of our lives, our heart follows. Matthew 6, verses 20 and 21. Paul, or I'm sorry, Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, but stir up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So which is it that causes it? Man, in this case, it's our actions that, fall, that, uh, that lead us, where we invest, where we put our focus, what we're praying toward. Then our, uh, our actions, in our actions, our heart tends to follow along behind. So do you have a passion to invest in the kingdom of God or do you develop a passion for what you've invested in? Same could be said for the discipline of Bible study. We uh, talked about that this past week on Wednesday, um, <clears throat> how those folks who are experiencing an uncommon life, an uncommon results in their Christianity, how those folks <clears throat> have, a, um, they have an uncommon commitment to the Word of God, to understanding the Scriptures. So here's the question. Do you read because you want more of God? Or do you want more of God because you read? So which is it? There are some times when, uh, man, we're so enamored with who God is and what God's doing and what God's got in store that we just passionately, desperately want to know more about that. So the desire, the passion leads us to, um, to study and learn more. And there are other times when as we're reading and studying, we're, uh, we're choosing to discipline ourselves to learn more about who God is and what God's doing. Where as we do that and those things, that our passion follows in behind it. All of this works its way out. Colossians 3 verse 9, Do not lie to one another, <clears throat> since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. In other words, stop deceiving one another because you died to that life. Or... Put that old life to death so that you'll just stop lying. So do I stop lying because I want to? Or do I want to because I know that I'm not supposed to lie? Yep, same thing there too. And if that's overwhelming, welcome to the party. And it is overwhelming unless God's driving the process. Notice this third thing here. A change in identity. Not just a change in our, um, 
our minds or our attitude or a change in our conduct or our action, but also a change in identity. Verses 10 and 11. And we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. There's a, there's a new us that undertakes this change that God's spoken about here that's called us to that we find in the scriptures. All of this, this new attitude, the new actions, flows from the new identity that we have in Christ. Now there's two big pieces. You'll notice as we read that there in verse 10, he says, you put on a new self. Now, for those of you who like my grammar notes here, that's in the active middle voice. In other words, you yourself, middle, you yourself, active middle voice, do this. You put on a new self. And then there's the passive part of what God does. Yourself who is being renewed. That's passive. So one's active, one's passive. But they're both the, they, they both point to the fact that you take some action and God takes action. And don't miss that. It's a cooperative effort in the midst of that. Why would God want to conform me to look like Jesus? Could he not just start over and create a whole new canvas of something that would be perfect and not messed up, not have the baggage in the history? Yeah, of course he could. He could start completely over. But he chose rather to start over with the you that you are. To allow you to be reborn, to allow you to experience the salvation that Christ brings. So that the world, which is broken around us, I think, can look and see what God changes in my life and in your life. And they can in that find hope for their lives. Why does God do it? Not because you're special. He doesn't choose within you and say, oh, I'm going to conform you and renew you to a true knowledge now because you're such a sweet person. That's not it. He does it because you have a new identity, a new existence, because he's loved you. He took the initiative to love you and give you all of these things, a new family, a new purpose or objective, and a new power within. That's why verse 11 says, that is Christ who is all and in all. Now we began uh, this morning talking about the subject of change. We began talking about it from the standpoint that it's necessary, God empowers it, it's important, it's required, and it's possible, but not by yourself. And if God's in you, you cannot continue chasing false gods without consequences. In other words, if, if Christ has done a renewing work in you, you can't continue a life that's not been put to death forever. You can't keep pursuing that. If you can keep pursuing that, God's not renewed a life in you because he wouldn't allow those things to take place together. If you can do it, you're not his. Let me end with a final story that kind of comes from our family many, many years ago. Our oldest son, when he gave his life to Christ, uh, he was a young boy. He was so young and I was nervous as a dad. Some of you dads and moms will be able to relate to this. 
I was nervous because I mean, he's like five, six years old. And I wondered, man, how could he really understand um, the substitutionary atonement of Christ? How could he understand imputed righteousness? How could he understand his sin and the weightiness of it and, and how God would uh, in Christ be his propitiation for his sin? How could he understand all this? In fact, I had him interrogated by three different pastors to try to poke holes in a story. I was still a police officer back then, so you can see how this has worked. I got, I got other guys trying to interrogate him. And finally, our friend, you know him, Jack Gibbons, sat me down in his office one day and he said, Brother Chris, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm just trying to make sure his decision's solid. I don't want there to be a problem. He said, in his sweet way, essentially, why are you getting involved in God's business? That's not your business. Allow the boy to be baptized. Everything seems right. Quit trying to find a problem with it. Yes, sir, I understand. And uh, Jack helped me a lot that day. Here's what we found about a, I think it's about a year later. Dylan, my oldest son, came to me and, uh, and he was feeling badly. He said, Dad, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, tell me about that. What does that mean? I thought, now, finally, the shoe's dropping. Now we can deal with it. He said, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, why is that? He said, because I still want to do some bad things in life. I mean, every once in a while, I want to do stuff. I'm going to make up things. But, you know, I want to pull the dog's ear or push my brother down or whatever, you know, those kind of things. And, and uh, he's like, I don't even feel bad about those kind of deals. And, um, I said, well, I, I understand. And we kind of talked through it and I asked some questions and all. And this was the conclusion he came to. As a young boy, six, seven years old, this is his conclusion. Dad, I guess I am saved. Well, tell me about that. How did you come to that conclusion? He said, I imagine that if I weren't saved, none of this stuff would even bother me. It wouldn't bother me that I live or that I wanted to do these bad things. It only bothers me because I am a child of God and I should know better. And you know what? He's exactly right. He recognized there ought to be a change, and he recognized that sometimes he wanted it, and at other times God put the want to in him, this passion to change. How about you? Is there within you a desire to be different or to change, to reflect Christ in everything, to put aside, to put to death all of these things that war against uh, the name and the nature of God? If not, friend, how do you explain that? And have you ever considered the fact that God knew about this part of you and then showed how much he loved you, giving his own life for you in Christ, how Christ uh, yielded his life over on a cross that he would absorb all of the punishment for your sin in himself, settle the debt, and then allow you to benefit from the price that he paid. When I first realized my own sin separated me from God, I prayed and asked God to save me. And uh, I had to pray with my pastor because I didn't know the words. And hey, maybe you're here today and you're saying, gosh, Chris, I, that's the problem for me. I've never yielded my life to Christ. I mean, I'm a religious person. Otherwise, why would I tune in on a Sunday morning uh, on live stream or YouTube or wherever to, in order to connect? Why would I do that if I weren't a religious person? But I've never yielded my life to Christ. For that's where I was. And hey, Here's what I found. Because of God's love for me and because of my choice to receive that and follow after him, God absolutely upended and changed my life, my desires, my passions, and the help for me to become all that he's called me to be. And if that'd be your desire today, then I'd encourage you in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer and you may want to pray with me. But I wonder if there might be a few of you that you're as Christ followers. Maybe you're 
part of the Inglewood family and you're scattered in different places and you're thinking to yourself right now, Chris, I, I've been changed, but kind of like your son, I still have these desires to do other things and I just, it's caused me to question whether or not I'm really part of God's big plan and purpose. Friends, you are. If God saves you, He continues to save you and ultimately saves you. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't change His mind. But He does call us to yield that He might continue that work of change in our lives. It's, here's how John put it in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, if we say we haven't sinned, we lie and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sin, it's God who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, you'll not become all that God wants you to become unless you're willing to change. But change is possible and change is a choice. You can make that choice because God's made it possible. Can I invite you just where you are? Don't disconnect, but would you just bow your heads and pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.